Good morning and welcome to Black Mental Health Matters. Today we're discussing supporting adolescents and teenagers through a trauma-informed approach. And with me is Dr. Cloud. Dr. Cloud has been a guest on this show several times and therefore he needs no introduction, I think. But feel free, Dr. Cloud, to share a bit about yourself with our audience. Um, so, uh, like Ms. Sonny said, my name is Dr. Cloud. Um, I've been a guest numerous times, so I really don't need a long introduction. Uh, I am a current social worker um, in North Carolina. I am an adjunct professor I'm at a few universities, um, and then I also run my own nonprofit um, addressing mental health for African-American men. So thank you for having me again today. Okay, Dr. Claude, tell me a bit about the trauma-informed approach. Just give me a brief definition of what it is. So the trauma-informed approach, um, when we look at it, and we can look at it from many different ways, it pretty much is a way to address traumatic trauma within our clients. Um, but we're looking at addressing in a way that does not reintroduce them to the trauma that will kind of, you know, I forgot the right word. Uh, to re-traumatize, we're trying to do is we're trying to address the trauma, but we're trying to address it in a positive and a safe environment so we can promote healing within our clients. Awesome. This is in a, in a brief word. <laughs> yeah. So how does trauma impact the behavior and the development of adolescents and teenagers? So trauma significantly impacts our behavior in our teenage and adolescent, depending on the type of trauma. So we first need to break it down and look at exactly what trauma are we addressing, right? Because then they will let you know exactly what we're dealing with and how we handle it. So we're looking at sexual trauma, right? So say for instance, sexual abuse, um, such as rape, molestation, um, what we see in our adolescents and teenagers that are going through sexual abuse, such as rape or molestation, is that we're seeing permissive uh, behavior, unfortunately. Um, we're seeing suicidal ideation. Um, we are seeing um, aggressive behavior as well. Or we're also seeing regressive behavior, which means that that adolescent or that child is regressing back into themselves and building up a wall because they don't want anybody to touch them, nor do they want to seek help because they don't want to talk about the sexual trauma. Um, and so that's great issues later in adulthood with um, connecting to people. So that's, that's kind of what one of the effects is. Now, if we're looking at, um, if we're not looking at sexual trauma, if we're looking at a child that has seen physical trauma, so such as a child who is a victim of child abuse and neglect, or a child who has witnessed any type of abuse in a household, such as domestic violence, what we're seeing again is that this child either starts to emulate that behavior um, in adolescence or teenage years, um, and again, we're looking at if the child was a victim of child abuse and neglect, um, that child would have a hard time connecting with federal adolescents and teenagers. That child would have a hard time connecting with adults or going to people that adults that they trust. Um, that child would have acts of aggression or anger issues, which can lead to imprisonment, depending on um, the type of environment. Um, or that child will start to act out those behaviors as well. So, for instance, uh, a child who has seen domestic violence in a household. Um, you know, as they get older, they may start to think that it's okay to hit. 
Um, and that is one of the effects of witnessing that type of trauma. Just to give a few examples, I know that was a lot, but that's just to give a few examples of how does trauma affect our adolescents and our teenagers? Because we have to look at all these different subcategories of trauma. What is coming up for me, and from based on what you're saying, is that if this behavior is left untreated, you know, not managed or, or changed, that the teenager, the adolescent, then becomes that adult who continues in these negative behavior patterns. Is that a given? That is a given, and the only reason why is because if therapy is not utilized, um, once the child or trauma informed approach is not utilized, once the child has been traumatized, that means that their trauma has never been addressed. That means that their child has been carrying it from adolescence to teenage to adulthood to uh, you know late adulthood. So just imagine or just try to imagine for those who probably uh, have never been through trauma before what that would look like. So if I was abused as a child and then that abuse continued to a teenage years and then I start being aggressive and abusing other people, right? I start hitting, fighting, um, abusing my own children because that's how I was raised. Um, and then later adulthood, the pattern kind of continued. That trauma was never addressed. So when you look at these families and they're, and they're saying things such as, well, you know, well, my mom hit me, so I hit my kids and now my kids hit their kids. That, that the trauma started with your mother and it was never addressed, right? And so we never kind of, it's the generational curses, I think is what we're going to call it, what most people call it. We never really broke those generational curses. We kind of just let them, you know, get passed down each generation until somebody finally said, oh, we're not doing this. We're going to address this trauma right here and right now. So that, that's predominantly what I'm saying. So this is why it is important to be able to see when a child is going through trauma and address that. The other question I want to ask, if you're in a school setting where you're meeting young people and you recognize the symptoms of a child carrying trauma, how do you go about helping that child? Um, I don't want to say without the parent's permission because I know sometimes as a parent we cannot see, we don't always see what's going on right in front of our eyes. But let's say you are carefully working in the school system and you notice that little Johnny's behaving different, there's this drastic change in behavior. Is there legislation for intervention? So when we notice, because um, I used to, I used to work in pre-K to 12, so as a social worker. So when we notice that there's trauma with a child, what we usually do first is we do involve the parent. That's, that's automatic because we have to have parental consent, depending on the, what the trauma may be. So this is so, so let me kind of caveat on this. So if we're looking at allegations of child abuse, neglect, uh, neglect, sexual abuse, we don't need a parent's permission. All we need is child protective services um, and they come out, they do the investigation. Let me caveat and put that in there. But if we are just dealing with like, you know, the child is witnessing any type of domestic abuse um, or anything like that, we typically will ask the parent, you know, have you noticed any behavior changes in your child? You know, what is going on? Uh, you know, do you think anything has changed in your child? And what do you believe could be the cause of it? Because we like to get more than one picture. 
And then, of course, with the parents' permission, we'll have the conversation with the child of, well, tell me what's been going on um, going on lately with you. You know, what's new? Um, you know, any issues, anything like that, for the child can give us their feedback as well. And what we'll do is we will have what we call a multidisciplinary team meeting. So we should be using the school social worker, the school psychologist, the school counselor, um, and then usually whichever uh, the VP, the vice, uh, the vice principal who's over our student of conduct or affairs. And so what that allows is for us all come together as different healthcare professionals um, and see and look at the child from more than one uh, viewpoint. Um, so I will say, for example, when I worked in pre-K to 12 weeks. That's very great. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I think that is very interesting that you speak to the parent first. You, you include the parent. Yes, because unless we the parent is the perpetrator. Yeah, unless the parent is the perpetrator. Unless the person, the parent is the perpetrator. Yes. So in North Carolina, one thing because I used to work in CPS too. So one thing is that um, if we suspect any type of trauma, we had to figure out what it was first. Before we, before, so most of the times. Say that a child is just is just you know uh, a child has marks marks and bruises. We don't speak to the parent first. We're not we're not legally we're not allowed to. Okay. We That's have to too. because in North Carolina, what is that is considered a um, it's been so long since I've been a CPS. I got to remember the name. It's called a forensic case. So if we it's called a forensic case. So what that means is that if we know there's marks and bruises on the child. Or the child says that, you know, oh, I've been sexually assaulted, right? We don't notify the parents. We notify crimes against children, which is our police department unit for children. And we have a conversation with the child and the parent. Now, we have, if we have a child who says, oh, you know, I saw mom and dad fighting or, you know, mom left me home alone. Those are non-forensic. We, we speak to the parent first to figure out, okay, has this child been traumatized from being left home alone? Or because you know mom hasn't been feeding them a lot of food, so North Carolina uh, laws on trauma and CPS involvement and school social worker involvement are very you know they're they have some gray areas but they are very straightforward. Okay, so I'm going to ask this question um, because what I'm hearing is having a safe and supportive environment for adolescents and teenagers for children in general. So how does a trauma-informed approach create such a space, create such an environment? So can you repeat that question one more time? I want to make sure I heard all of it. <laughs> how does a trauma-informed approach create a safe and supportive environment for adolescents, teenagers, young children, for children in general? Let's say children in general. So... A trauma-informed approach it gives a child a space, a, a safe space, because what it says is that we understand the trauma, right? We know the trauma, we know what's going on, but in this area that you're in, you have a safe space to talk about that trauma, and not be um, trying to find the right words today, and not be judged or not feel like it needs to be fixed right now, right? So when we're doing trauma-informed, we are, again, we're making sure that we're not re-traumatizing, but that we are addressing the trauma. So your safe space is saying that this, you do not have to be re-traumatized, but you can talk freely about the trauma if you, sh if you so wish. And I can give an example of that as well. 
when I worked for outpatient mental health, we were talking about domestic violence. And as we were talking about domestic violence, I started to cry. I was in grad school. I started crying out of the blue. Don't know why I was crying. Couldn't, couldn't figure it out to save my life until my director said, have you ever witnessed domestic violence before? And have you ever talked to anybody about it? And I said, well, I have witnessed domestic violence before, but I've never talked about it. That tra So I never addressed that trauma in my childhood. So in my adulthood, when we were simply having this deep conversation about domestic violence, that trauma decided to make its way to the surface because I was in a safe space to talk about it now. I never was in a safe space as a, as a child to talk about it. It's like I witnessed it. I never got to talk about it. It was just kind of like I've seen it, but it's one of those things you kind of suppress to the back of your mind because you don't want to talk about it. But so again, it, yeah, that locked into your subconscious mind until something comes up and the subconscious mind pushes it back to the conscious mind, but you're not recognizing it because you don't really have, or you haven't been carrying that memory as a mm -hmm. current thing that is happening. Exactly. That's very interesting because very often we see people acting out mm -hmm. and we think they're just behaving badly for whatever reason, but we're not looking below the surface to see if they've had trauma in their life. And I think all of us experience trauma of some type, but we just think, oh, that person's just behaving badly. And it, it just confirms that the mind is more sensitive than we think, that it carries so many things within it. And yes, we can, you know, camouflage it and cover it up, but it's still there. Exactly. And that's, that's... Having, a, having an open sore that you allow to just fester and fester until one day you get gangrene and they got to cut the whole limb off or something. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I think that's what we do at a soul level. We carry things within us that we don't address because we're not having these open discussions where people are being educated about trauma and the impact that it have on our overall life. Yes, it may start when we're very young, but it reflects based on the lifestyle that we have as we become adults, how we're living our life, how we're expressing ourselves as adults. Exactly. And you make a very good point. When you repression of trauma, like I said earlier, when it's not treated in adolescence or or when you're a teenager, it does show up in adulthood. And that's what that's why I'm glad to get an example because that repression of trauma showed up in my adulthood. And that is one of the things, even now that I'm older, you know, I when I am looking at trauma informed approaches and safe spaces, it makes sure that we address all trauma. Yeah, and I, I like that answer. And I like that you're sharing your own experiences because this makes it very real. Because very often we think that males don't connect to things at an emotional level. They don't feel things the same way. So I like that you've gone there and I trust that our audience, especially the males, recognize that it is okay to be vulnerable. It is okay to tell their story to someone that they trust get the help that is needed especially if you're a young person a teenager adolescent or even younger dr cloud what are some effective strategies that 
that you and maybe your colleagues have used for building trust and um, ex, you know, communication with traumatized adolescents and teenagers? So for me and my colleagues to build trust with teenagers and adolescents, we all use different methods for me. <laughs> I laugh though when I look at it for me building trust with teenagers and adolescents is I play sports with them. So the thing what I do in therapy is I do not like therapy inside the office. And I like to do therapy with with my clients, especially teenagers and adolescents. I usually like to do therapy depending on where they're at. So for my young my young kids, you people might do play therapy. I do play doh, we do play four, we do Uno. You know, we do all of these things, you know, and not only am I building trust and rapport, but I'm also having a conversation with them that doesn't feel like it's counseling. Awesome. Ad- and I like that approach. I like that my- approach. <laughs> <laughs> for my adolescents, sometimes it's the same thing, but it's a little bit different. So I may be playing football with them. I may be playing basketball. You know, we might be outside doing some type of outdoor activity, but it's the same approach. We're having a conversation. We're laughing. And they, it doesn't feel like counseling to them either. But we know it's the kid was counseling because we're talking about all the trauma, but we're kind of having fun in the process. So it doesn't feel so over, overwhelming for that client, that uh, client at a certain time. Um, I've done cooking with clients before, you know, uh, with my teenagers before um, in the office setting. Um, if so, um, if, or if I do at um, home therapy, I do cooking, you know, in the kitchen with my clients. So it just depends. That's how I build my trust and rapport. I, I meet them with, I meet my adolescent teenagers where they're at. I like to learn their I mean, interests. Yeah, I like to learn their interests and from their, from their interests, I, that's how we do our therapy. I had one client, he loved to play uh, basketball. We would play basketball and be doing, and be doing therapy. Every shot I made, I have, I, hmm. I have a friend who said to me she's a swim coach she's also a life coach and mm. she said to me very often a lot of people who come to her swim classes just want to talk about their traumas about what's going on in their life so she finds that the swimming classes are twofold it's not just about teaching them to swim but it's also a life coaching session mm-hmm. yeah. and, and my, my kids love it because I'm not doing traditional therapy. And I never believe in traditional therapy most of the time. With adults, yes, because we're kind of stuck in our ways by this point. But with adolescents and teenagers, we could be a little bit more flexible. So with them, I like to make it fun. I mean, we're talking about trauma. I, I want to make sure we're talking about this trauma that we're doing in a, in a environment that you feel safe and secure in. So that's out in the field, running, or out in the field, doing some type of sport or whatever we're doing. That's how I want that to look like. I like that idea very much. Um, learning while doing. I like that. Having fun um, while engaging in some serious stuff. And I've seen this play out here in Barbados at a company called Higher where we do outdoor adventure training uh, for corporate Barbados. And some schools have actually brought their children up to learn how to, one, become leaders, be motivational, you know, give them that motivational stuff. And, mm. I, and I like that approach, experiential learning, because I think that when you go there, you absorb the information much better. And I always refer to it as fun while learning. So I definitely like that approach. 
So what are some of the potential challenges that you have found in terms of implementing the trauma-informed approach? So I think some of the barriers or that we have found is that some adolescent teenagers are resistant to therapy. And that's a, that's a big thing because I talked about this before um, in one of our previous conversations. So I, I think this is perfect to mention it now. It is this ideology that we give to our children that what happens in this house stays in this house. Don't talk to a stranger about um, household problems, right? And we've talked about this before. And so that is a big, a big uh, impact to how we address trauma and why we have barriers because Kids will come to me, teenagers come to me and say, well, my mom told me that I should talk about these problems outside the household. Or, you know, well, my mom told me that we don't talk about our family problems to strangers, right? Or I would get, you know, I would get all of these different barriers or, you know, the child has just been so traumatized that they regress within themselves so they don't trust anybody. No, mom, dad, therapist, they just don't want to talk to anybody because they don't trust nobody. And so that's a barrier within itself because you're trying to pull them out, right? Help them, yeah. You're trying to help them come out of it, come out of this wall that they built for they for they help them kind of heal. But the, that is a barrier because the child does not want anybody to be near them. They don't want to let anybody in, it. and so that, like you said, it's festering, right? It's it's kind of like gangrene. So that child does not want to let that pain go, that hurt go, and so we have another barrier because if we can't break through. Is going to lead to more issues. That is true. As you were speaking, this question came up in helping young people, adolescents, and teenagers through the trauma informed approach. Are parents also included in that same therapy? Because I often think that sometimes we're healing one aspect of the family and the other, the parental unit, is still pretty much set where they are. There, there's no change for them. So the child is still in that environment where um, I think the trauma is being reinforced, especially if the parents are not being treated as well and they're not healing along with the child. And that's just my thinking. I think that you have to look at a whole family healing rather than say, okay, the adolescent here is traumatized, so let me just work with the adolescent. But so, you're back in the same environment. So I will say that that is true, um, what you're saying, but I'll also say this. So it depends on the trauma for the child, right? It depends on exactly what type of trauma we are addressing. Now, if it's sex, you know, sometimes I ask a teenager or a child, you know, do you want mom or dad to be here or, you know, whoever the person is that traumatized the child? And I, I would let them make that decision, you know, self-autonomy, client self, uh, self-determination. But also in the same regards, I do like the, for parents to join sometimes because what you see, and I've seen it only a few times in my career, what we see is this, mom or dad or whoever joins the therapy session with the child and everything comes out in the process. And sometimes the parents are healing, as you're saying, because what the parents are doing is saying, and this is rare for me to see this, parents are starting to apologize to their children. And it's very rare to me because growing up, I always, 
growing up, especially in the African American community, black parents do not apologize too fast. I, they don't care how wrong they are. They don't care what they did to you. They're not going to apologize too fast. And so it's very interesting to see that in certain therapy, when um, when I'm watching client interact with their parents, parents are apologizing to their children for the trauma that they that they have put them through. They're apologizing because they realize that they could have done better. They could have protected them more. You know that they are that they had their own trauma, and versus dealing with it when they should have, they were passing this trauma on to their child, and that they are trying to do better. They just don't know how to do better. And so I do think that it is twofold. One fold, one side of that is that it's very good because the parent trauma is getting healed. The other side of it is that we still have to make sure that we're not re-traumatizing that child as well. So we have to make sure that the child is not only comfortable with the parent being in there, but also that the child is not going to be re-traumatized from what the parent is saying to them. Because we don't, we don't want to be 10 steps ahead and then get not 20 steps back because we have re-traumatized because we have decided to include a parent into that therapy session. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, being a parent, you know, you have these moments where you may not want to deal with the trauma. You might feel guilty, especially if you let's say for argument's sake, you leave your children with a relative who molests your children sexually, you might feel a sense of guilt. And therefore I think it is important that that to be healed. Yes. You know, you, you have to build a strong um caregiver. And I want to use the word caregiver because not all children are with their biological parents. No. A strong caregiver environment where that caregiver also understand the trauma-informed approach. And they too are a part of that. It is like, and I'm going to go to the Bible where mm -hmm. Jesus speaks of putting new wine into old wine vessels. You know, because you're, you're taking that child, you put it back in the same environment, same mindset. And I think you have to change the mindset of everyone in that child's environment. Um, and by environment, I mean the home setting. You have to bring them along. You definitely have to bring them along. And with that, <laughs> my next question, Dr. Cloud, is how does trauma, how does a trauma-informed system support the natural resilience of young people? So I will say that the trauma-informed approach creates strong resilience in children and young people. Um, because it gives them this extra strength. And I know most people may not know what I'm talking about or what that looks like, but I'm gonna tell you I'm gonna tell you what that should look like. So when you're using a trauma informed approach, you have given the child their voice back. Right? Think of it like oh, here's a good example. Think of it like the little mermaid, how Ursula stole her voice and then when she finally got it back. She was, uh, she was very strong. Um, she was very much her whole self again. Um, and I know plenty of parents have probably seen this movie by now, whichever version. So think of it like that with children. When we give children a, a trauma-informed approach, we're giving them their voice, right? We are giving them the room to say that this is what you did to me or this is the trauma that I suffered and this is what I'm not allowing, right? This is what I this is what I want you to hear about how that trauma affected me and what I am doing to make sure that this trauma does not affect me moving forward. We are giving our young people the voice 
what a trauma-informed approach. Because one, we are telling them that this trauma is not, is not their future, okay? They don't have to hold on to it. Two, we're telling them that this trauma, it can't, I always tell, hate to tell people that it can be healed, but this trauma can be addressed. Because most people don't want to heal from their, heal from their trauma. They usually want to hold on to it. So I would tell people, your trauma is being addressed. So we're giving these young people the power to address their trauma and make the decision if they want to heal or to let it faster. Okay. That's why. Because I was supposed to question you on the word heal because I think that, you know, healing is important so that you don't is. have a repeat of that situation, you know. I know it that there's is. some things that cannot completely heal from, like the common cold. That will come once there's cold and flu season. But I think trauma is concerned that you can heal from a specific trauma. And you can also have tools to deal with trauma in general that you can use to deal with trauma because as life unfolds, things will happen mm -hmm. that will cause you to feel pain. But if you have the tools to deal with those um, issues in life, then exactly. the trauma, you know, whenever it comes up, you say, you know what, this is what this is. This is how I'm going to deal with it rather than carrying it on your back like it's a sack of books of knowledge. And even though you don't want to walk around with a sack of books of knowledge on your back, you want to have them where, you know, you can read them and put them aside, you can share them. You don't want to carry burden on your back. Exactly. And I think that's the, that's the thing that we have to understand is that once we give our young people their voice back, we, we really realize that a lot of the trauma has it gets addressed quicker and that they heal quicker that's that's what i've realized in, in my therapy approaches say that again please i'm not so sure I, that i understand that so 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 pretty much is so let me break it down when you give young people the voice right the, the voice to be their own leader we are giving them the power to say that I'm addressing the trauma that happened to me so I can heal the trauma that has occurred. That is what I'm saying. Because when you do not give a child room to voice their trauma or their pain, what we're basically saying is that you do not have the power or the right or your own autonomy to heal from this trauma unless I say so. Oh and that God, is... That's quite interesting. Yes, because we're basically telling this child that Every decision that you make, everything that you're going through is on is on my end. You address it or you heal it when I when I want you to. When if you've been if you've been raped, abused, neglected, you know, whatever, I don't need to talk to you about this right now. This this so you don't I don't need to give my input. And this is what we send a lot of black households is that you hurt me, okay, but I don't want to talk about it. So you need to deal with it on your own terms, but don't bring me into your drama. So we're basically saying that I, I don't. <laughs> I'm gonna cross you here because I don't want to forget this point. But I'm mm -hmm. gonna ask this question because what I'm hearing is that a lot of what we as black parents do could be residual of life on the plantation where we didn't have a voice where we just had to do what we were told. We can question things. And maybe, just maybe, 
this pattern of behavior has been passed on, you know, from generation to generation. You don't talk because I'm an authority here and because I'm an authority here as a parent, you really don't have anything to say. I've heard of cases where parents actually blame young girls who have been raped for the rape. You know, it's like, well, that's your fault. Why did you go this place? Why were you wearing what you wear? And I told you not to do this, you know? Um, it is really sad when the education is out there where we can educate ourselves to be better parents, to understand mm -hmm. our children better, to really allow them the freedom to speak, to tell us what is going on and to address it. I, in hearing you speak, I'm thinking maybe, just maybe, a lot of these behavior patterns of not allowing our children to have that voice is residual from a life of being um, captive and, and being a slave, not having the freedom to express yourself as who you really came here to be. And, and by that, I mean all of us are made in the image and likeness of God and we want to express our own creative uniqueness. But when you are put in a bubble and say, well, this is where you belong, I honestly believe that some of it has been passed on. And I think I can say that even with my own parents growing up, where we were not, I don't want to say given that love. I mean, I know that my parents loved us, but it was never expressed. We were given all the material comfort that we could be given. But in terms of the hugs as a young girl and, um, you know, and I love you, that was never expressed. And you're right. So, and I love that you're saying it because you give me an example that I've seen too often. You know, my parents never told me that they love me or my parents never really were affectionate, right? And I've heard this plenty of times. And so it would cause me to not be a fashion and show my children that I love them. I love my children. I do. But I don't know how to show my children that I love them. Or since I never heard I love you before, I don't know how to really show it. And I like that example because in my own personal life, my, and I don't mind sharing, you know, like my grandmother. My grandmother was never a affectionate person. I'm an affectionate person. You know, my mom tells me, you know, I love your thing. My grandmother is like pulling teeth. And so as my grandmother has gotten older, now she's a little bit more affectionate towards me. <laughs> because I would tell my grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would tell my grandmother, one thing that I'm not going to do is when I say I love you, you're going to learn to say it back. And so now she says it back now that she's a little bit older because she had to kind of break that cycle of, well, you know, my mom never really told me I loved you or really showed it. Um, but again, my grandmother grew up in a different era. So it's kind of it's kind of re it's kind of addressing that that lack of affection and kind of uh, trying to break it, you know. Even if it's not with my her with her children, with her grandchildren, and she's learning to kind yeah, of break I, it. Yeah. And I see that with my mother and her grandchildren, where she would hug them and she would love on them and she'll tell them that she loves them. Um, and I'm happy for that, you know. I am happy for that. Because they can see no uh, wrong with their grandmother. They just see the perfect grandmother. 
But I, you know, growing up as a daughter would say, you know, what, mom didn't have me, mom didn't do this, but she was a great provider. Yeah. My because father was also a great provider. Exactly. For the material yeah. things, yeah? <laughs> yeah. For the material things, they made sure that we had the things that we needed. Exactly. So that that's a so like yeah. so to go back to go back to your original question. I do think some of it is residual from the trauma that we experienced as black people over two hundred and something years ago. Because we have to remember that slavery is not that far was not that far away, even if we want to believe it. Um, and so I do see the thing that we have some of that their residual uh, trauma of you know in authority. I don't I can touch you and we don't address it. Because you you know you didn't you didn't address a slave master when he was beating you or raping you. No, so why so exactly so it's kind of we still have some of that residual that you don't question authority authoritative figure in your life, and I think that is one of the biggest issues that we are also facing. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's why a lot of abuse happens because young people are taught not to question the power of those who are in authority, even within the church setting. You know, it is unspoken that whatever they do is okay, but then exactly. there's that trauma to your soul. And sometimes exactly. you just, you know, don't know how to express and who to trust. Because if the person in authority is causing you pain, who do you trust? Exactly. And that is, and I think that's the biggest issue is, who do I go to when the person I love the most is the one causing me one the trauma and, and I cannot talk to them? That's the question. Yeah, those are some very um <laughs> well the next question is gonna be on culture and how can a trauma informed system be inclusive and culturally sensitive so that we address the unique needs and experiences of a diverse population. And we know that diversity today have many different shades, you know, it is not just religious diversity and ethnicity, but also sexual diversity in terms of how we identify um, gender-wise. Repeat that question one more time, because that was a long question. <laughs> it's a big question. <laughs> I know it's a big question because I'm, I'm going to put it very soon. How does an informed, trauma-informed system assist with the cultural? Keeping okay. this culture sensitive, especially as it relates to diversity. And, I, and then I went on to talk about LGBTQ, you know, because they're part of our society too. How, how do we keep things trauma have a trauma-informed approach so that everyone is included okay i get it now so basically the way to have a trauma-informed approach that is culturally diverse right is to one is to learn so inform and trauma-informed care is not a band-aid for everybody i'm, I'm so sorry um it, it so you have to look at everybody's culture because that is the only way to address the trauma so the, when you are looking at trauma-informed care and you're trying to make sure that you are culturally appropriate culturally diverse. You have to know exactly what type of culture you are working with. You have to also know some of their culture's history. So if you're working with African Americans, of course, slavery is one of the biggest traumatic, um, you know, traumatic things that we've had, right? If you are working with somebody who's Jewish, the Holocaust was one of the biggest traumatic things in their history. If you're working with somebody from, you know, Africa, 
you know, depending on what part of Africa, uh, you know, apartheid was one of the biggest traumatic things in their history. Um, and so on and so forth, learning their culture's history, learning the traumatic, uh, the traumatic things in their history as well, will kind of help you be a little bit more culturally sensitive as well. Secondly, what we have to look at is that for trauma-informed care is for any culture is how do they like to address it, right? So when we're looking at our Caucasian counterparts, they strongly believe in therapy because there's not that much trauma for our Caucasian counterparts. There are the issues for a lot of a lot of trauma, but they don't have too much trauma in their history. You can't really give me, I always tell people, you cannot really give me a major traumatic event for white people, then you can give me for any other culture. And it's not to be culturally insensitive, it's just to say that when you look at history, they are predominantly the, the reason for that traumatic event, right? Um, so when we're looking, so when we're looking at African Americans, you know, of course, like I said, slavery, um, and then also we're looking at um, family, familiar structure. So how's their family set up, right? So some families are patriarch, patriarchal, patriarchs. Some families are matriarch families, right? My family is a matriarch family. So you look at how the trauma comes down from the matriarch to the family, how it's themed down as well. Or for Indian culture, most Indian culture or Muslim culture is a patriarchy. So basically is that I have to look at exactly how is the system so this culture set up and that lets me know how to work around this trauma. I remember when I had a Muslim client, it was forbidden for her to speak to me without a male present. Without a male speak to me. Because yeah, I was a male, yeah. Yes, yeah, because I am a male. I was a male social worker, but it was not forbidden for her to speak to a female social worker, and not and without needing another male present. And it was yeah. a weird. It was the weirdest thing to me, but because I didn't understand Muslim culture at that time, and so what I ended up doing to make sure that one that this client had her trauma addressed is, I had my coworker come with me, and so what I had my coworker do. I would have her speak to the female client. I never said any word. All I did was take notes. So everything that the client was saying, I was just writing the notes down. I was just the, the, uh, the note taker. But my female counterpart was the one speaking to her. So I was, I was, I was kind of finding a little loophole into, you know, that I'll have to work with that client and her trauma. As long as I wasn't the one I was speaking to her. There's no reason for another for a male to be there, um, if, you know, a male Muslim, because my female counterpart was there. All I was there for was just to take notes. I never said a word. I never spoke up. All I did was sit right there and sit the notes to make sure everything was transcribed the way that it was supposed to be. And that is how we were able to get that client to work with us and feel comfortable having a conversation without the abuser being there because the abuser was her husband. But because Muslim culture dictates that a male must be present when another male, once when a female is with a, uh, around another male, she couldn't talk about that trauma openly. Understood, understood, and I and and I know that the foundation for that is just a belief, you know, just yes. a belief that. If a male and a female are together, then there's only a third person in the room. This is a shy town, unfortunately, <laughs> you know. 
and I and I agree with you that understanding people's cultural differences is very important as a therapist because mm -hmm. you can do things to offend. You know, you, you can offend other people, and, and that's why it is important. Very important to respect people where they are. I've got to take my and shoes off one time in a, in a um, while visiting a family, and their culture was you take your shoes off at the door. I didn't know anything about it, and I accidentally, I accidentally offended them. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll go back and take my shoes off. But I didn't know, so they had taught me something new. So every time I visited them, my shoes were off at the front door. It was, it was, it was, it was weird to me, but it was their culture. So when they, when they told me what the reason was, well, you know, um, it was a Chinese family. Once they told me the reason why, I was like, oh, I know. Yeah, I know. and it just, it's to meet people where they are as therapists, as counselors, um, it's to meet them where they are. Exactly. And once you can do that, we just have to be flexible. Yeah. And therefore, we're coming up to the hour. Okay. But I have one more question for you. And that question is, how does a trauma-informed system prioritize the well-being and the mental health of adolescents and teenagers in its approach. Mental and spiritual well-being trauma-informed approach for teenagers and adolescents. It goes back to, it gives them a voice. Um, it goes back to that they feel secure and safe right it goes back to that they know how to address this trauma and heal from it right because like you said earlier when we let trauma fester it is not good for our soul but it's also not good for here right and so when we are using the trauma-informed approach we and we are letting our teenagers and our adolescents have a voice and addressing this trauma, we are giving them that power back. And it and it starts to heal them mentally, spiritually, and emotionally and mentally. And you start to see these changes. You start to see the lack of aggression. You start to see the wall coming down. You start to see, you know, more effective communication. You start to see um, more open discussion about the trauma and the the trauma did to them right and how they're trying to address it that's that's what a trauma-informed approach does like we're not re-traumatizing but we are we are surely talking about it and how it has managed to heal and and it, it, at, at the center of it all how it has managed to fully heal and i think that is one of the greatest things i think that's very important that young people have that place, that safe place, you know, and persons that they can reach out to to help them on the path of healing. Because I think the longer it takes you to get into that place of healing, the harder it becomes to heal. And if we can capture that trauma at a young age, I think we're going to see a world that is awesome to live in. We're going to see people who are kinder to each other, more loving to each other, and more respectful. And that's my hope for all humanity. 
Exactly. So we're in a place where we can all just get along, get along well with each other without being overly aggressive. I'm not saying that aggression is bad because there are times when you need to set your boundaries very firmly. Exactly. But we're not overly aggressive to the point where we cause self-harm and the harm of others. Exactly. Are there any final words from you, Dr. Bell, on this topic? Um, I think the only thing I would say here is that we need to let teenagers and adolescents speak when they've been hurt. And that will solve so many problems in the future. And and that would give that will let them know that they always have a safe space to come to come to when they are going through this. Awesome. Well said. Yes. And I agree with you there. One of the unfortunate things I think that has happened is that a lot of religious institutions have not stepped up and created those safe places for young people. And by the same token, a lot of parents are keeping their children away from religious institutions for whatever yeah. reason. But from where I stand, I still think that spiritual institutions, religious institutions still have a strong foundation if, if, and what I said, if they're given that spiritual support and guidance in a safe way by trained persons within those organizations. And with that, I would like to thank you for watching Black Mental Health Matters. I would like to thank Dr. Clough for his knowledge and wisdom on this topic. And I wish each and every one of you who have joined us a pleasant Saturday. Thank you all so much. Until Thank you all.